Start in verse 17. Now today, as you know, because we've said it and because there's a table with stuff covered up up here, you know that we will be observing the Lord's Supper or communion. Now I'm going to call it both things and I'm going to call it randomly, interchangeably both things, so don't let that disturb you. So there are two ordinances of the church given by our Lord Jesus. They are baptism and communion. Now, I can sympathize with you if you are one of those folks that sometimes struggles to find God's will. You know, if, uh, if you care what God's will is, then I'm sure at times in your life you struggle to figure out exactly which way God would have you to go in a given situation. Baptism and communion, though, are two areas where we do not need to struggle because God's will for us is absolutely clear in Scripture. Now, if you haven't obeyed in these two areas, uh, let me suggest to you that maybe you should question whether you're obeying in any other areas because it's not a matter of finding God's will when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper. It is, it is clearly explained to us. And if you will not obey what is clearly mandated in Scripture, then you're probably not going to obey the things that are a little more difficult to discern. And it may be that there's a a matter of rebellion going on instead of misunderstanding. So let me encourage you, if you are a believer who has not followed the Lord in baptism, let me strongly encourage you to do that and to participate together with the church in the Lord's Supper. But if there is any misunderstanding about communion, I hope that we will clear that up today. Now, I suspect that some of you may be saying to yourself, well, I've been a Christian for a long time. And I've taken the Lord's Supper a hundred times, and I've heard this sermon a hundred times, so I'm going to zone out and think about what's for lunch. Let me encourage you not to do that, because we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper's uh, origin and, and history and that kind of thing. This didn't come out of thin air. It came out of what the Lord instituted at the Passover, and He did that for a, for a good reason. The Corinthians' misuse of the ordinance of baptism is something that the Apostle Paul wrote passionately about. And more importantly, it's, it's a sin in this area is something that God takes so seriously that some of the Corinthian church were sick and some of them had died because of the misuse of the Lord's Supper. So this is indeed serious business. Let's pray together before we get into the scripture. Lord, we pray uh, that we would learn today, that we would learn to revere um, what this communion is, what it represents. Father, we want to honor you, and we want to show our honor for you through uh, our, our seriousness and our honoring of this communion that your son instituted. Uh, Lord, we don't worship the, the bread, we don't worship the juice. Father, we worship you, but Lord, we want to reflect um, thoughtfully on what this represents. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would give us understanding and give us passion to honor you in what we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, please read along with me if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses 
to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, if Jesus decided to initiate this new thing out of thin air, that would have been his prerogative, and we would obey him, and we would observe the Lord's Supper. There is, though, a history behind it, and what I want us to do is look at that history to more fully understand the significance of the Lord's Supper. What meal were Jesus and the disciples celebrating when Jesus initiated the Lord's Supper? We know it was the Passover meal, right? And so at that Passover meal, you know, Passover was celebrated yearly by the Jews to commemorate God's deliverance of the Jewish people out of bondage in Egypt and eventual blessing by taking them into the promised land. Well, the new celebration that Jesus initiated was to celebrate and commemorate God's deliverance of all people from sin and the bondage and the slavery of sin to the eventual blessing of heaven. There are many parallels for us to consider in this. You know, God raised up a man to deliver the Jews from Egypt. And that was Moses, the mediator of the first covenant. Then God raised up a man to deliver mankind from sin. That was Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The Jews escaped the judgment of God by sprinkling their houses with the blood of the Passover lamb. Men, women, boys and girls all over the world now escape the judgment of God by having the blood of the true and final Passover lamb applied to them. This new covenant is radically different from the old covenant and so very much better. But I want you to see that there is continuity in the eternal plan of redemption that God has. And this has been in God's mind from all eternity before creation ever began. So we see from our vantage point that the Passover lamb was always designed to point to the ultimate fulfillment of God's Passover lamb who was Jesus Christ. God was showing humanity that uh, for things to be set right, there would have to be the shedding of blood. When Jesus came on the scene, that great prophet John the Baptist said about him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Passover meal pointed, that pointed to the Messiah was the setting in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. 
And I hope that considering that for a moment will help you see communion as more than something we do once a quarter where we get together and go through this ritual and, oh yeah, we better do our quarterly repentance so that God doesn't get us, okay? I don't want that to be the meaning of the Lord's Supper for you. I want you to see the eternal plan of God's salvation that has been pointed to all throughout history to the cross And then I want us to look back at the cross and the history leading up to the cross to see that God always had in mind the only way that I can reconcile this rebellious and sinful people to myself is by providing a sacrifice to atone for their sins. Let's look at our text. The first thing I want us to see is that not coming together to worship at all is better than coming with sacrilegious or half-hearted worship. Verse 17 says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So this should already be familiar to us, but I'm going I'm to go back to Malachi, where he talks about the same thing. To come to church, to come to worship in an in a irreligious, sacrilegious manner, half-hearted way, is actually worse than not coming at all. Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 through 10 says this, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of us, says the Lord of hosts? Now look at this. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So guys, the bottom line is God is too great, too magnificent, too holy to accept half-hearted, sorry, lazy kind of worship. He is too great for that and he will not accept it. Now I'm not saying that if you're feeling down a little bit... (laughs) Uh, that you shouldn't come to church. If you're like, hey, I'm not 100%, I'm not going to go. That is not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, if you're physically ill and you're contagious, then you probably shouldn't come to church, right? Drew and and, uh, Deanne and the family are home today because one, they're sick and they don't want to get you sick, right? And that's good and that's wise. But if you are feeling down and feeling depressed, that is exactly the time that you should make sure that you come to church, So the last thing you should do if you just don't feel up to coming to church, the last thing you should do is skip church. What I am saying, though, is that when you do come here for worship, you need to come with love for the brethren. You need to come with confession and repentance rather than unrepentance and lack of confession. We need to come with joy and expectation that you get to worship the Lord. We need to come with joy and expectation that you will hear from God. That kind of attitude will honor God, and that will be worship that is acceptable to Him. 
<clears throat> By the way, that kind of attitude will promote church growth too, did you know? If you get up on Sunday and you go, I can't wait to get to church because I believe that the Lord God, creator of the universe, has something to say to me. If you have that attitude through the week, that is gonna, that's going to rub off on other people. You're going to say to other people, hey, you need to come to church with me because Sunday morning God has a word for me. And I know that he has a word for you too if you're, if you're in Christ. Come to church with me. And hey, for lost people, you need to say, come to church with me because I know that God has a word for you. Because he's going to extend the invitation of the gospel to them. Now you may be thinking, well, if you'd preach better, I'd get more excited. Okay, I'll make a deal with you. If you will work as hard at getting excited as I do about preaching better and better every week, we'll be just fine, okay? So come with expectation, come with joy, and let that joy be contagious throughout the week so that you tell people, guys, you got to come. We're going to have a great time. We're going to hear from the Lord. We're going to sing songs to the Lord. And we're going to meet together with the brethren that I love and that I know you're going to love. Let us do everything we can to cultivate that kind of mindset here. All right, so not coming together at all is better than coming with half-hearted worship, right? The next thing is come together in unity. We must do away with all manner of division. Now, this is a group effort, okay? This is not something that one person can do or even one group can do. This has to be all of us working together on this. Now let's see what divisions were in the Corinthian church and see if we can relate to it. Starting in verse 18, he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One grows hungry and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. First, let me say that in verse 18, it seems a little bit weird that Paul says to them, you know, because he's already admonished them for their divisions. And he's saying, uh, I've heard this report and I believe it in part. And he's already said, I've heard a report that you guys are in factions. And that's, so it's weird to me that he says, I kind of believe it later on. So this is interesting. Let me show you. In 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 12, Paul said, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So if he's already heard this report, believed this report, and scolded him about that, then why in verse 18 does he say, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part? Well, I was reading that, and I thought, well, that's kind of odd, because he's already fussed at him for this. Well, um, there is another way to translate this, and believe me, I've only had one year of Greek, so I'm not so cocky that I think I, I have a better understanding than these Bible translators. But I read from a very smart guy that I respect who said that there may be a different way to render this clause. The clause can be rendered in Greek, and I believe a certain report, which perhaps makes better sense. Um, the word translated in other English versions is partly, which is an adverb, and it's also a noun in Greek, meaning a report. So uh, I thought that was interesting. You probably were going, 
man, what are you talking about? But I thought that was interesting because it either says, I believe it in part, or it says, I believe a certain report. But anyway, Paul is saying there's division. That's not good. So I hope verse 19 is interesting to all of us. It says, if there must be fact, it says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, divisions and conflict in the church is not good at all. But the silver lining is that it lets you know who is genuine and who is not genuine when you have disturbances in the church. Now, I hope that nobody sees that Paul says here there must be factions. And so you decide that since there must be factions, I think my spiritual giftedness is to cause trouble, right? Don't do that because um, there will inevitably be trouble sometimes. But divisiveness, uh, it's going to come in a church full of people, but woe be to the one who brings that divisiveness, right? So Paul says, look, there are going to be divisions, but the good news is that in those divisions, those who are true and sincere and genuine will be revealed through those divisions. Good and gifted leaders tend to emerge through conflict. And that is the silver lining. You know, there are generals and there are leaders throughout history that we wouldn't know about. We wouldn't know how gifted a leader they were if there hadn't been conflict. So we hope there's no conflict in the church. But when there is, the cream rises to the top. The conflict here that Paul addresses is between the haves and the have-nots. That's what their problem was in Corinth. Verse 21 says, For in eating, each one goes ahead and eats his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. All right, so I think Paul is becoming a little sarcastic here, right? Because he says, There are three possible explanations for the way you guys are behaving. One, you don't have a house to eat and drink in. Two, you despise the church of God. Or three, you want to humiliate those who have nothing. We don't want to do any of those things, do we? So we have the same challenge today. Some of us have more ability to contribute when we eat together as a body or when we eat together as a small group. I said earlier that this is a group effort. And going to take the effort of everybody to make sure there aren't divisions. Those of us who can provide for ourselves and others who don't have nearly as much should do so freely and lovingly. On the other hand, sometimes those of us without as much should not presume on the generosity of other people with very little gratitude. There should never be a sense of entitlement so we want, to, we want to get along with each other without ever embarrassing one another. But we don't want to do it with presumption. We don't want to do it with arrogance. We don't want to do any of those things that will cause division. So the bottom line is, if you have, be generous and not stingy. If you have not, then be grateful and helpful and not entitled. Right? And that way we can all get along, we can serve one another. You know, generosity in light of God's generosity toward us seems like a small thing. When I am generous to somebody else, and then I begin to think for a second about how God has been so generous to me, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It doesn't seem like something I need to pat myself on the back about. 
spiritually, without God, we're all bankrupt and desolate. But God, being rich in mercy, did not spare even His own Son for our sake. So we can afford to be generous to our brothers and our sisters. Now one, this is a little bit of an aside, but one piece of uh, advice that I would offer to you, and you do what you want, you don't have to listen to me here, but one piece of advice I would give you is, in, within the body, uh, I would suggest that individuals don't lend money to other individuals for benevolence needs. What I do is I contribute to the benevolence fund, and then Brother Robert and the committee deal with that. Because if I don't do that, and, uh, and, and Brother Don comes to me and says, man, I need 100 bucks," And I give him 100 bucks, And he says, I'll pay you next week. And then two weeks from now, he hadn't paid me back. That's going to cause a little friction and division, right? Now, Brother Don would never do that. But that's going to cause a little irritance, right? Whereas if he said, hey, I need 100 bucks to pay a bill, he could go to Brother Robert and the committee, and they could say, okay, good, and do that. And then I don't have to, there's, there's no reason for division among individuals. You know what I mean? So my advice would be to contribute to the Benevolence Fund, and then if there are members who turn out to need some kind of assistance, they can go to Brother Robert. Brother Robert is a more discerning fellow than I am. When somebody comes in to me and says, oh, my dog died and my girlfriend left me and I can't pay my water bill, I go, oh, I'm so sorry, here, let's give you money. But that's not good because sometimes those people don't tell you the truth. So it's good that we have a benevolence system and somebody like Brother Robert's in charge of that kind of thing. What other divisions could there be besides the haves and the have-nots that the Corinthians were dealing with? Well, race could be a division, although that would be absurd and completely unchristian. Yet we realize in America, and perhaps more in the South, although I don't know, maybe it's everywhere, there's that potential for division on race, but that again is ludicrous. There could be division with political ideology. Y'all know, guys, that our government doesn't operate very well right now, right? Because the people on one side hate the people on the other side and think they're evil. It used to be that they say, well, we have a little difference of opinion, but we're all Americans, let's work together. Now they say, I'm right, I'm morally justified, you're horrible and evil. So there's the potential for political ideology to separate us, and we don't want that. Um, There could be age that separates us. You know, we have young people and we have older people, but not a whole lot of people in between. And our younger and older members could get a we versus them mentality going. Uh, But that that is wrong. You know, we could respect and appreciate the new ideas and energy of our young families and respect and appreciate the wisdom and experience of our older families. That's what we ought to do and get along with each other. So we need to come together when we come together to observe the Lord's Supper in a spirit of unity. We need to remember also why it is that we celebrate communion. Verses 23 through 26 say, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are to proclaim the Lord's death. We are to do that as we 
preach. I'm supposed to say, hey, the Lord died, and here's why he died. He died to reconcile us. We are supposed to say that, give that message as we go out among our friends and neighbors and give them the gospel. And another way that we proclaim it is through baptism. When we baptize people, we say you are buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. And another way that we show it is through communion, where we celebrate and remember the Lord's death until he comes. Now the next thing we want to do before we take communion is examine ourselves. Verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, none of us wants to eat and drink judgment on ourselves, so we are to judge ourselves before we partake. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. The Lord takes this seriously. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Now, as we've discussed, it would be disrespectful and even mockery for you to partake of the Lord's Supper flippantly or while in knowing rebellion. So, Am I saying you should skip the Lord's Supper? No. What I'm saying is you should repent of any kind of rebellion you got going on. Repent of that. Surrender to the Lord. And then celebrate with joy as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, we're going to talk briefly about if you're not positive you're actually a Christian in the first place. Now, you may wonder, why in the world does Brother Steve give the gospel every single week? I've heard it every week. Let me tell you why. Brother Robert and I went this past week to see a church member of West Laurel Baptist Church, okay? And I asked that person, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? They said, I think so. I hope so. I said, why? Because I've tried to do good, and hopefully I've done good enough, okay? There are people who come to church for year after year after year who think the gospel is God's good, you're bad, try harder. Okay? That's not the gospel. Instead, the gospel is this. God is good and you are bad and you can't fix it no matter how hard you try. So what Jesus did was he came and he did in your place what you and I should have done. He lived a perfect, sinless, holy, righteous life And then died in my place and in your place, potentially, if you are to accept Christ. Now what that means is, by faith, you can ask the Lord to take your your history of sin and guilt and, and shame and rottenness and rebellion. And He can place all of that on the Lord Jesus who paid for it on the cross. And He can take Christ's life of perfection and obedience... And he can credit that to your account. 
thereby making you righteous. And you may say, well, I don't feel righteous, and you don't look too righteous, and you're right. But we are counted as righteousness, as righteous, because Christ's righteousness has been imparted to me. Now, I'm trying to work on acting like who I am in Christ, and eventually when I meet Jesus face to face, that will be accomplished. And I will be righteous, in fact, as I am credited to be righteous right now. So we need to make sure that you understand the gospel. And if you are here today and you say, you know, I kind of was in that boat of, I thought God good, me bad, I got to try harder. If you're there, let me tell you, you don't have to stay there. Repent of your sins, surrender to Christ. And I know that's hard to do, guys. In our society, just about the hardest thing to possibly do is to submit yourself to anybody. And uh, we are called to submit ourselves to Christ, to be slaves of Christ. The New Testament writers call themselves the doulos, the slave or the bondservant of God. But guys, when you know this master, you learn that it is a blessed thing to be a slave of Christ. Because the other option is being a slave of sin, and that is, that is a bad option. So guys, here's the deal. If, you want, if you've never been saved and you want to be saved, i tell you what I'm going to do. And I don't usually do this, but I'm going to do this this morning so we'll be prepared for the Lord's Supper. I want to lead us in a prayer of confession. And if you've never accepted Christ, I want you to do that today. Now, saying a prayer after me doesn't save anybody. You could say this a million times over and not be saved. What saves you is the Lord changing your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. The Lord quickening you and giving you His life, okay? But if you are being called to do that, then I want to invite you to pray with me. Let's all close our eyes. And if you are saved and you know that you're saved, pray for those around you. But if you're here today and you're saying, I'm not certain that I'm a believer and I want to settle it and the Lord is leading you to it, then just pray in your heart after, after me and just tell the Lord what I'm saying. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve death because of that sin. But Father, you sent your Son to take that penalty for me and to die for me. And Lord, by faith, I want to transfer my sin to your blessed Son who already paid for it. And by faith, God, even though I don't deserve it, I ask you to take his righteousness and credit that to me. I ask you, Lord, to save me. If you've done that today, then I would pray this too. Lord, help me by grace to live for you. And that's whether you did that five minutes ago or two minutes ago or 30 seconds ago or 85 years ago. If you are a follower of Christ, pray this with me. Lord, help me to live out the message of the gospel in my life. Lord, to love you like I ought to, to serve you like I ought to, and to witness for you like I ought to. Lord, we pray this together in Christ's name. Amen.